Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Guys, we're in our, our Family Matters series, and uh, we spent a week talking about what it means to be a family together as the family of God. Uh, we spent a week talking about the culture of a church family being rooted in love, that word being agape, a love that seeks the good or the well-being of the other. Uh, last week, we talked about communication, and uh, I have it on good authority that some of you have practiced that uh, over the last week. I hope that went well. Um, okay. Wasn't arousing. Yes, it did. Thanks for the help. I, I did get some feedback from a mom who had a middle school son who I think was sitting in the service, and they were trying to figure out where to go to lunch, kind of an argument between him and his sister uh, after church, and he just said, I hear what you're saying. We should still go to McDonald's. So he was, he was trying to apply it. He got maybe, maybe 40%, but as a pastor, I'm excited that a middle school student's paying attention. Here's the thing. Even in a great family with a culture of love and agape where people are working on clear communication, sometimes things still do go sideways. Have you ever had a disagreement with a family member? Yeah, okay, those hands went up fast. Have you ever had a disagreement with a church member? Don't raise your hand. Well, those start to go up fast too. That's okay because that's, that's what we're talking about. Every family, church family, nuclear family, extended family, needs a mechanism for reconciliation and restoration because things will go sideways. Conflict and failure, frustration are inevitable. So when that happens, how we respond to one another in those moments is critical. And the Bible has two words that it uses to describe how we should be together. One is is reconciliation and the other is restoration. I want to talk about reconciliation just quickly enough to provide a backdrop, and then we're going we're gonna to look at a story of Jesus restoring someone with whom he'd had some relational uh, rupture. So this is part of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, he had planted a church there. Uh, he wrote him a letter. That was 1 Corinthians, and in that letter, he's appealing for unity. A year later, he has to write them a second time. It's 2 Corinthians, and he's writing as an appeal for unity. So even in this, this church family, there were some things going on that was causing some relational friction. And, and Paul is a good enough pastor and a nice enough guy, he doesn't just text him and say, knock it off. Uh, he writes them a letter to explain what they need to be doing and, more importantly, why. So here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, listen, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, now, hold on to that phrase from now on because it comes really important in a second. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul is saying, now that Jesus died for us, we don't live for ourselves any longer. We live for him. So there's been a fundamental shift. 
once we're born again, the primary driver, the primary director of our life is no longer ourselves, but now Christ has some things to say about it. And what Paul says is because Christ is now directing our lives, we don't look at one another any longer through a worldly lens, but rather through the lens of Christ, or what I would call the lens of the gospel. Right relationships require a right perspective. If we're going to have the right kind of relationship, we have to have the right way of looking at one another. When a couple has a baby, their first baby, right, the whole world changes. Second baby, you're kind of like, meh, we're fine. But the first baby, right, is like, it's pretty intense. I remember, I remember being St. Francis Hospital the day after Tyler was born, and Wendy and I are packed up. We're ready to go. The, the nurse comes in, and they, they, they hand you a Tyler. You know, they hand me Tyler, and they're like, here you go. Take him home. Keep him alive. I'm like... I don't know how. And I go home, and it's like I've gone home to a completely different house, right? Christmas decorations are choking hazards. Electrical outlets are death traps. Stairs are compound fractures waiting to happen. I have a completely different way of seeing the world. And Paul says when you're born again, the same thing happens. You have a completely different way of seeing the world. Now that you are a new creation... Now that you've been born again, you relate to the world around you differently from that moment on. You look through the lens of the gospel rather than through the lens of the world. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth when he says, from now on, from from the point where you were born again on, we do things differently. And the example he gives of doing things differently is reconciliation because the world doesn't reconcile. When the world has relational rupture, they just go in two different directions and stay very far away, coming back only to fight and beat up on one another for the most part. But Paul has said in other writings that, guys, we're a family. And we talked a couple weeks ago that you can't unfamily family. And so there must be among God's people a spirit of reconciliation, a commitment to reconcile. Why would there need to be a commitment to reconcile? Because we're going to tick each other off. If we spend any time in proximity with one another as we're walking out our faith together, there will be relational bumps. I would love to tell you they wouldn't because we all perfectly reflect Christ. But it would seem as if we are undergoing the process of becoming more Christ-like day by day. So the unchrist-like part of me is probably going to annoy you at some point. What are we going to do? Well, hopefully, we're going to reconcile and not divide. Paul says that God has not only given us the message of reconciliation, but the ministry, the office, the responsibility of reconciling. So the way we are to be oriented toward one another is with a spirit of reconciliation. Now, Paul ends that passage with this appeal where he says, be reconciled to God. But who's he talking to? He's talking to the church in Corinth. He's writing to these guys and saying, listen, you've kind of gotten out of alignment with one another because you're out of alignment with God. If you are reconciled first to God, and that becomes the lens through which you see the world and others, then you can begin to be reconciled with one another. So what God has done for us, we then experience and do for one another. Paul says, you're not just just messengers, messengers, I can say this, you're not just messengers of reconciliation, you are meant to be practitioners. 
And so I want to take you to the story of Jesus and Peter because it is a beautiful example of Jesus being a practitioner of reconciliation. And I'm going to identify five different things that we have to be committed to do for those who have offended us. And only three things, there are more, but I've got only three things that the person who has caused the offense needs to be committed to do that reconciliation and restoration might take place. You with me? Okay. You and me, brother. We got this. Okay. So here's the backdrop, right? Uh, we're back in the upper room. I feel like we've spent most of the last three weeks in the upper room. So Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. They've shared a meal together. They've instituted the cup of the new covenant. They had the first communion together. And then Jesus has something he wants to say in this beautiful moment of cooperation, collaboration, and God doing amazing things. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Y'all are going to run away. So we've had this beautiful moment, but you're all about to fail me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Peter is sitting at the table with the rest of the disciples and basically looks at Jesus and says, hey, even if all these other losers cut and run, I'm still in. I won't turn my back on you. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. How many times? Three, three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the other disciples said the same. Have you ever had somebody make a promise to you that they then couldn't deliver on? Yeah? Wendy and I are, are engaged to be married. We're, we're moving toward the marriage. And Wendy had a family member who was a travel agent. And so we started talking about the honeymoon. And they said, I'm going to send you to England. And we got pumped. Like, this is awesome. We're going to England for our honeymoon. A couple months later, uh, it was, I'm going to send you to Hawaii. Well, that's good. I still love me some Hawaii. Um, getting closer to the wedding, and then the message was, I'm going to send you on a cruise. Like, oh, cruises are cool. Cruises are awesome. Um, we wound up at the Anaheim Best Western. So it was a bit of a step down from touring the United Kingdom. People communicate things with the best of intentions. It doesn't mean that they will deliver or necessarily that they are mean-spirited. Peter, I think, had the best of intentions, probably a little bit of pride, but he was like, Jesus, I am all in. I am committed. And so they leave the upper room. They have the prayer in the garden. Peter starts his failing right there. Remember, he keeps falling asleep. Jesus is like, bro, really? You couldn't stay awake for an hour? Peter's like, no, man, I'm tired. So they have the garden. Uh, then Judas comes, and he kisses Jesus, betrays him. They arrest him, and they take him to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. And Peter is right outside. And it says, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I do not know the man. 
Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Failure leads to shame and isolation. Peter could not deliver on the promise that he had made. And when he failed to fulfill his promise, when he failed to stand by Jesus, when he felt the beginnings perhaps of a relational rupture, it broke his heart and he wept bitterly. Failure leads to shame and shame leads to isolation. Guys, sometimes life surprises us and we don't respond the way we hoped we would. This is Peter. I have a lot of empathy for Peter. I can preach a message on Peter the failure, or I can preach a message on Peter who's a lot like John. Really kind of punts the ball sometimes. Doesn't always get it the way he wants to get it. Peter abandons Jesus, and trust is broken. When trust is broken, both parties are wounded. This is why reconciliation and restoration are so important. When trust is broken, it's not just one person that is wounded. They're both wounded. Jesus is betrayed. He's, he's disappointed. He's, he's abandoned. But Peter, Peter is exposed. He's ashamed and he's isolated. He too is wounded. It's a self-inflicted wound, but it's a wound nonetheless. If trust is the source of unity, the foundation of unity, and unity is the foundation of relationship, how do we restore trust once it's been broken? Do we have a responsibility to? Well, Paul would say, yeah, John, you do, because you've been given both the message and the ministry of reconciliation. So when you find yourself at odds with someone, when there is a relational rupture, when things are not going the way they should, your responsibility is not to withdraw, though that may be what is in your human nature. Your responsibility is to press in as a minister of reconciliation. He says to the church in Galatians 6, he says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And in that same letter, he says, The whole law is fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So my responsibility, if you fail me, my, your responsibility, if I fail you, this is going to sound really unfair, is that I'm supposed to bear the burden of your failure. Well, where do you get that? Well, he says right there, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is fulfilled in loving one another. So I don't have the right, should you offend me, to step back and recalibrate, redefine the nature of our relationship. Now, understand, I'm talking to those in the church right now. Don't hear me say, please, this is very important. Don't hear me say that Scripture means that if you are in a relationship with someone who is abusive towards you, that Jesus is saying, suck it up, buttercup, bear their burden, and stay in there. Absolutely Reconciliation and restoration requires action on two parties, a commitment from two parties. It requires people who are committed and submitted to the Word of God. So it's in that, that context that I'm, I'm speaking. If you and I are saying we're walking together as brothers in the family of God moving forward, and you do something that wounds me, 
Scripture would say, it is my responsibility to go to you, not to withdraw from you. Do you understand the difference? That Okay, good. Bear one another's burdens. I wish Paul picked another word. But I think he picked that one on purpose. Love can be a burden. Agape, seeking the good of another over my own, that can feel like a weight. But is that not what we see in the example of our Savior, who was willing to take upon himself my failure, my sin, my brokenness, that I might experience wholeness? Agape, this kind of love we've been talking about, is the key to restoration. You and I, from this moment on, as Paul would say, live in a new kingdom, and that new kingdom has new laws. We're fulfilling the law of God, not the suggestion of God, not the kind of a good idea of God. This is what Jesus says it means to be part of a body, to be so committed to one another that we don't let our wounds push us away, but rather lean into the dysfunctional part of our relationship that we might actually bring one another to a place of wholeness. So what did that look like for Peter and Jesus? Jesus knew Peter was going to blow it. Jesus told Peter he was going to blow it. Peter blew it, and he didn't blow it a little. He blew it a lot. So, I mean, think about where Peter's coming from right now, right? Peter just until, he didn't just tell Jesus he wouldn't deny him. He basically said, remember, even if all these freaks do it, I'm going to do so much better than they did. And then he didn't. Jesus is resurrected. He's walking around. He's encountering people. Peter has taken the disciples, and they've gone fishing in Galilee. They're having a bad night. They're not catching a lot of fish. Some guy on the shore, he's got a little campfire, cooking some fish, cooking some bread, sees them out in the water and yells, hey, guys, how's the fishing going? Peter says it's going lousy. Guy on the beach says, hey, have you tried throwing the net on the other side of the boat? Peter's like, ding, 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 ding. That sounds familiar. Throws the net on the other side of the boat. Net is completely full of fish. Peter's like, oh, my gosh, it's Jesus. Takes off his robe, jumps out of the boat, swims to shore. Other disciples come in, and then in John 21, verse 13, it says, Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, And he did the same with the fish. Now, this was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. If Jesus' conversation with Peter there on on the beach sounds a little repetitive, there's a lot going on there that we won't take the time to unpack this morning. Every time Jesus says love or feed, he's using different Greek words. He's emphasizing different aspects of their relationship. But for, for our conversation about restoration in a relationship this morning, there there are a couple of things that I want you to catch. We'll call this the road to restoration because it is a process. We don't get there just like that. 
there are two parties whenever an offense is taking place. You have the offending party, right? that's what we'll call Peter. Then you've got the offended party, that would be Jesus. Both have responsibilities if restoration is going to take place. We're going to start with the person who's been offended. Here's step one. If I'm going to be a person of reconciliation and restoration, check your heart. If you're going to have a conversation with someone, you need to check your heart first. I need to check my heart first and ask the question, what's my motivation? Why do I want to have this conversation? Am I coming for justice or am I coming for restoration? We know Jesus was motivated for love by his love for others and his love for the Father. And when, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach him how to pray, he says, pray like this. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. So we know that was the focus of Christ's heart. So whenever he was going to have a conversation, like the one he's about to have with Peter, he was going to have the conversation in the context of your kingdom come, your will be done. Where is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is wherever he is recognized as king, wherever his will is being done. And so when we're going to have what could be a difficult conversation where we might be tempted to meet force with force, our orientation going in needs to be, God, may your kingdom come in this conversation. We have to ask ourselves, who's wearing the crown? Is Jesus wearing the crown? Is he the king? Or am I trying to be king? Am I coming to this place because I need to explain to this person why they were wrong so they would recognize their, right, their wrongness, affirm my rightness, and in all humility just kind of stay quiet and submit until they've paid the time for the crime? Or am I having a conversation to draw someone out of their own woundedness, perhaps their own shame, and bring them to a place of wholeness? For that to happen, I have to be yielded to Jesus. Your heart will change whenever and wherever you recognize that God is the only rightful wearer of the crown. So even if a conversation for some reason devolves into a disagreement or, heaven forbid, a fight, you fight in a way that heaven wins. That's how you fight a fight. Married couples, you get in a fight, you better fight so Jesus wins. If you fight for anyone else to win, you lose. That was free, not in the notes. Okay. What I love about this story, the backdrop of it, is Jesus broke bread with Peter before he addressed any shortcoming. He brought him to the campfire, sat him down, broke bread with him. This would have been a callback, a reminder to the last time he broke bread with Peter, which was a covenant meal, as Jesus instituted the new covenant. He said, I am irrevocably committed to you no matter how this conversation goes. Secondly, in ancient Near Eastern culture, when you broke bread with someone, it, it communicated something. It said, everything is right between you and me. We are good together. So the, the relationship between Jesus and Peter was never at risk. Jesus established that right out of the gate. Here's the second thing. Choose the right time and place and go to them. Wait a minute. You said I was the one that had been offended. I had the, I'm the one who had been hurt. I'm, I'm not going to go to them. I'm going to sit here in my rightness, in my correctness, until they realize how wrong they were, come kneel before me in tears, begging for my forgiveness, and maybe, just maybe, I will extend the scepter of kindness to them in that. No, not how it works. Not how it works. 
We pick the right time and we pick the right place. We don't have these conversations in the heat of passion or the heat of emotion. This is the third time that Jesus and Peter had been together. But it's the first time Jesus had this conversation. Probably because this was the right time. Jesus calls to Peter from the beach. He shows up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He went to where the one in pain, the failure, if you were, would, was, and he brought him to himself. We go to them. We don't wait for them to go to us. Why? Well, because we're ministers of reconciliation. You don't minister from absence. You minister from presence. If I was supposed to minister the word on a Sunday morning and I decided I was going to stay home in my living room and watch football, that doesn't work. You have to be present with people in, in order to minister to them. Well, do I do this privately or do I do this publicly? That's a great question. If the breach has been made public, the restoration should be public as well. Peter made a big deal. He was like, I'm all in. I'm going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. Everybody heard me. And his failure was public as well. And so Jesus restored him in the presence of the other disciples. He restored Peter's reputation amongst his peers. And, and he gave Peter hope for the future in ministry among his peers as well. If, if I have done something to make a private disagreement public, I have the responsibility to then go to every single person I have made this thing public to and bring them back into the story of restoration. Sometimes we get really good about sharing our stories with people who are not involved in the story whatsoever. Caden and I get into something, and I find 15 different people that I need to process with. You don't need to process with 15 people. You can protest, process maybe with one, two, and the Holy Spirit. After that, it's gossip. Not a lot of amens. That's okay. I'm going to keep going. If I am then restored to Caden, but I have compromised his reputation by talking to 15 other people, I have to make this restoration public. I have to go back to those 15 other people. First, I need to repent for telling them something that they had no business knowing. But then they need to understand that we have made this right together. Okay, here's number three. We doing okay? Okay, doing all right. Help people address the truth of their shortcoming. This is where loving someone can feel like a burden. This is agape. This is doing something for their benefit. It does me no good if I have wronged you if you don't tell me what I've done because I can't grow and I can't get any better. There are two responsible parties in this relational rupture. It requires honesty and compassion from one. The one who's been offended needs to come with compassion, with empathy, with kindness, in a spirit of gentleness and address what's happened. But it also requires honesty and humility from the one who is going to hear it. Here's the thing. You're responsible for you. You're not responsible for anyone else. So if Jesus invites you to have the courage to have a conversation that may feel hard to you as you lead into it, Jesus is going to give you what you need to be able to have that conversation. And regardless of the other person's response, you will have responded in faith 
to Jesus, and he will honor you for that. Sometimes we cave to silence or dishonesty because we don't want to give the emotional or conversational time or energy to be honest. It's hard. Here's what Scripture says if you feel like it's hard. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Practical point of application, fellas, you can talk about your feelings. How do I know? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can talk about your feelings. Some of you want to get up and run out of the door right now. You can have the courage to be honest. You don't have to pretend. Jesus will give you the words to say what you need to say if you will trust him. The Holy Spirit always gives us the strength to do the right thing. Can I say that to you again? The Holy Spirit will always give us the strength to do the right thing. And if we want our relationships to grow as a church family, honesty is a non-negotiable. Okay, I got two more of these. Here we go. Step four, speak the truth in what? Love. Love is a commitment to another person's good. Remember, love is not, in this context, the warm feelings. Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. This is Paul saying, here's what happens when we're committed to speak the truth in love. When we're committed to have those hard conversations for somebody else's good. Speaking the truth in love, when that happens, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. When we commit to speak the truth in love, we grow as a church. From him, the whole body, that's us, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Speaking the truth in love, not faking it till you're making it, not pretending everything's okay, but being honest about who we are and what we feel. This is actually one of the ways God grows his church into maturity and relationally and in connectedness, which why, to go back to Paul again, we have the ministry of reconciliation. A ministry is an office. It is a responsibility. I don't know why I suddenly feel like I'm clicking into preaching, but hear me say, we have to be committed to honestly communicate to one another. It is the only way we grow together as a church. John, has something happened that you're addressing? Absolutely not. I'm just saying this is what Scripture says. Now, truth without love doesn't work. It just hurts, right? When somebody just feels like they need to pontificate and tell you how horrible you are, not helpful. Love without truth is equally damaging because we leave people stuck in their own brokenness. And having a a heart of reconciliation and compassion and being committed to speak truth to someone in love is what calls them up and out of that brokenness. That's why if I'm going to bear one another's burdens in love, I have to be committed to honest and open communication. It doesn't work without it. I hear compassion in Jesus' voice as he's talking to Peter. And this, it's not explicit. I, when he's saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I just, I, I kind of feel like what Peter's probably hearing is, man, Peter, your behavior was really unloving. I really didn't feel like you cared for me well. You didn't support me well. But Jesus is not going to leave him there. He's going to call him out of it, which leads to the fifth point, Give permission to begin again. 
We are never, if we're ever honest about another person's failure or a relational break, we are never going to leave them now wounded. We're going to invite them out of that relational rupture back into a healthy relationship, and then we're going to begin to champion them forward. Jesus says to Peter three times, feed my sheep. He is recommissioning him. He's saying, there's more for you. You can start again. You're not stuck. The the hallmark of your life, Peter, is not going to be that moment where you refuse to identify with me. I am going in the front of all of your brothers to give you again the mission that I gave you months ago when I said, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter, your job is not done. If we're not committed to restoration and reconciliation, if we're not committed to walking in unity, we have no idea what work of God we might actually be compromising. Because God wasn't done with Peter. But Peter needed to be reconciled. He needed to be restored before he could be reengaged and recommissioned. John, this is a lot. I know. It's a lot. And you're putting it all on the person who was hurt. Would you like to make a quick change? Let's talk for a minute about the offender. It's such a hard word. The offender. I'm going to give you just three quick things because we're out of time. We may pick this up again sometime down the road. But I want to give you three things that the person who has caused the offense needs to be committed to in order for reconciliation and restoration to take place. What is the offender's responsibility? The first thing is you've got to show up. You have to be willing to have the conversation. We usually avoid the people we've hurt. We don't want to be reminded of our failure. We don't want to be reminded of the pain we've caused. And so we just shut down or we go away. But remember, you can't unfamily family. In the church context, it could look like this. Maybe you're sitting up here in the front row and you, you start walking out the door and you see somebody in the parking lot starting to come in this door that you know you're in relational conflict with. Maybe you've caused them some pain. Suddenly, the Spirit of God leads you over here to talk to somebody so you can go out that door. Ever happen? No. You see out of the corner of your eye somebody walking in and you're uncomfortable and you know you need to have a conversation but you don't really want to and suddenly you feel led to talk to this person over here. And you don't have to make eye contact. Guys, if I've done you wrong, I have to have the empathy for your pain, the compassion for your pain to allow you to tell me about it. I have to be willing to sit here and listen to understand what my behavior produced in you. I have to let you share your pain or your disappointment with me without rising to defend myself. I have to show up and have the conversation. Secondly, if you messed up, own your failure. It's the only way to move beyond it. Yep, I did that. Yep, that was wrong. Hmm. Would you please forgive me? Listen, nobody should be surprised if you mess up. Certainly not you. I'm not very surprised when I mess up. A little disappointed in myself sometimes, but surprised? Not really. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, this is not my goal, but there are, I'm in a process of becoming more like Jesus. Owning my failures is part of how I get there. I do not have an expectation of perfection of myself, so I am certainly not going to have it of you. I would like to be getting more and more like Jesus, doing better every time I have an opportunity. 
But we are going to mess up. Don't run from it. Don't hide it. Simply own it. And once you own it in, a, in, an, in an environment of restoration and reconciliation, you can be free of it. If I won't own my failure, I carry my failure with me. If I admit my failure, I confess. Bible says confess your sins one to another. Why? So you can be judged? No, that you might be healed. When I confess, yep, I blew it. I'm so sorry. That invites the Spirit of God to begin a work of healing in me. As long as I hide it, I posture, I pretend, I don't get healed. This is why someone, that's why it's, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is kindness when someone comes to me in the right spirit to address something I have done that has caused them pain because it will provide an opportunity for me to repent and to be healed. Otherwise, I just carry it. Here's the last thing. We'll go home with this. Have the courage to try again. Failure does not disqualify us from our place in the family of God or our role in the purposes of God as they move forward. Philippians 1.6 says this, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He does not say who he, who, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it as long as you're perfect, as long as you don't screw up, as long as you always get it right. The Spirit of God will always be working in us to lead us forward into new things as long as we remain submitted to Him and doing our best to align with the kingdom of God, saying, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Don't let shame, don't let failure, don't let guilt put you on the bench. You deserve to be in the game. You are part of the story that God is writing. And if there is a voice of accusation that says you have failed too much or disappointed too many, so you just need to go home and sit in a dark room, you need to understand that is a lie coming from the pit of hell. Get a little bit of backbone in you, look him dead in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus, you shut up. Because you don't have to listen to that garbage. Failure is not your name. Your name is daughter of the Most High God, son of the Most High God. Guys, we're all going to fail at some point. Can we just, if you don't plan to fail at any point in the future, would you just raise your hand real quick? Because I just want to learn, right? So, okay. So, let me say it this way. If you plan to fail at some point in the future, would you raise your hand? I'm not saying you want to. It's just probably going to happen, okay? So now that we know it's not just us, can we get over ourselves and help champion each other moving forward and not feel like we have to hide who we are? Can we do that? Guys, it's, it's this atmosphere of reconciliation and restoration that will allow us to grow into our calling. Because whenever we extend or receive grace, we become a little more like Jesus. That, that was Peter's experience, right? Shortly thereafter, Pentecost, he is God's mouthpiece. He's explaining everything that's happening. He became a leader of the early church. And when, when he was martyred for his faith, when he had a chance to deny Jesus, not only did he not deny Jesus, History says he told those who were going to crucify him, I don't deserve to be crucified like Jesus. Crucify me upside down. The man never backed down and backed off again because someone had compassion, understood the ministry of reconciliation, and led him to a place of restoration.
May that be the hallmark of Lompoc Foursquare Church. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so grateful that we have been reconciled to God in Christ. God, we are so grateful that you are no longer counting our sins against us. God, we are, we are so grateful that our failures don't define us, that they've been forgiven, and that you are always calling us to become more like you. You call us out of our failures and into greater wholeness. Lord, would you allow us to be a people of courage and compassion who do the same thing when we fail and who call people out of their shame and disappointment when they fail in a spirit of love and a spirit of forgiveness. God, thank you for those who are baptized today, both in this service and the earlier service. Would your anointing come to rest upon them in a unique and a powerful way? Let them leave this place with the cheers of God's people, their brothers and sisters, echoing in their ears. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.